right. We are currently going through a series in Revelation. We are just starting chapter three. And what that means is we're going through right now the, the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. You guys know what Revelation is. It is the book on the end times. It's eschatology, if you want to you know, use these big doctrinal words. It's eschatology is a doctrine of future times. And, and, and this is an important doctrine for us. It's, it, Revelation itself is 22 chapters. There's, there's a lot here to cover. There's a lot of details that God has given us about what is to come. And as we go through a book like Revelation, it can get confusing. It can get to places where we really need to think a little bit, really know our Bible. Um, and, and we're going to try to give you that. We're going to try to teach you as much as we can, different perspectives, different views. Uh, but right now, we're in the beginning. In the beginning, where, it's, where we haven't really gotten to all the symbols and all the crazy prophecies, we're still addressing the church, which means everything that we've been, we're going through right now in chapter 3, uh, also ch well, chapters 1 through 3, is really practical for us here and now. Because it's speaking directly to what the church is going through in this day and age. And these seven churches, they represent who we are today. They're, they're Christian, they're believers. And to, tonight, we will be covering the Church of Sardis. The Church of Sardis, what they struggle with is that they did not live up to the name of Christ. They did not live up to the name of Christ. They struggle with following up with their identity, their name. And, and when we think about names, names mean something. They, they mean something. They, there's meaning behind names. They represent us, and we also represent a name. I mean, I, we don't necessarily take our names as seriously as we did, like, back in scripture times. Right? When we, we were able to change our names and, you know, pick and choose and things like that. But we still have value of our names, right? We don't like it when people use our names as an insult, right? We don't like it when, when, when our name becomes in society something that means something, you know, derogatory, something that we don't, we don't want to associate with our name and it, and it hurts us, right? We, we, don't, we, don't like, we don't like to have those kind of uh, personalities attributed to our name because, you know, some, those personalities may not be true of us. Um, and, and as we think about these things, we think about then how important, how valuable our name really is. But what, we, what we're going to come to see here in Sardis is that these people who, who are supposed to live as a church of Christ, as Christians, this church in Sardis, who are supposed to live up to the name of Christ, did not do so. They did not live up to that name. And, and so we're going to come to see that. We're going to come to look upon Sardis, the city, and we're going to take a look at what, what exactly do they struggle with? And how does it help encourage us to live our identity out as a Christian? Take your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to look at the first six verses. Let me go ahead and read the passage for us. Revelation chapter 3, starting with verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. 
Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names of Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me give you guys some context first. Let's talk about Sardis. We're, 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 we're going through these seven churches, and now we're talking about Sardis. We've been going around in a circle. We started with Ephesus, then went to Smyrma. Per, uh, Perdonis, uh, per, per, uh, and uh, Theatira and Sardis, right? And so we're here now. And Sardis, Sardis is a city that was founded in around 1200 BC. It was part of the Lydian kingdom. And Sardis was well known to be a necropolis. What that, what, what that meant was that in this, in this plain of where the city was located, there was this hill, this, this big hill where a citadel, a, a defense tower, a place where they, people can find refuge in times of war, is stood on top of this hill and oversaw the entire land. Right? It's like imagining us here in Wana and then you know, near, near Mount Sinai, there's that giant hill. Imagine a giant that castle, fortress-like structure just sitting on top of the hill, overseeing the entire land around it. And, and that's what a, a Acropolis is. And so what we see here is that being a, a Acropolis, being a castle or a fortress being built on top of this hill, this it provided a natural defense system for invaders. And so the city itself was well defended, and the city itself was also a prominent city. It, it was a wealthy city. It flourished during uh, the Linian Kingdom. It, it was flourished because in the nearby river, they found gold dust. And so they they had they were able to mine or you know sieve for gold dust and, and get those and and be able to clean those up and trade them. Um, the city was also well known for its trade and industry in garments and dye, right? Dyeing different clothing and things like that. And so that, that's one thing that they were well known. For. That's something that they were good at. That was that was their main industry. And what happened with Sardis over the times? Is that they were, because of their natural defense that they had around their fortress, they thought that their city, this, this fortress, this tower was impenetrable. And so they were overconfident. And that overconfidence led to apathy. And that apathy led to their capture twice in their history once in 554 BC, another time in 214 BC. And so they were captured twice. And, and during Bodo's time, you know, every time there's invaders coming to a city, they're gonna they're gonna destroy it, right? It's gonna be broken down because of war. Um, but but the city was also hit pretty hard in 17 AD during the Roman Empire when an earthquake hit the area. And so by the time this letter is written, uh, the city had a reputation of being a a well wealthy city, a strong city, but really it's not all that there. It was like in the process of rebuilding, but never really rebuilt 
back up to its original fame or strength. So that's what that's who Sardis is. That's the city of Sardis. And what we come to see here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1 to 6, is that Jesus caused the church in Sardis, the Christians that were there in that city, to wake up. Calling them to wake up from their slumber and to walk with God without any compromise. Without any compromise. I divided my points in this passage based on the one word that was repeated four times in the Greek. It's not as evident in the English, but that one word is name. The name. And so the first point we'll see here, found in verse one, is that. The church of Sardis lived by a name only. It, 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 what we see here, right, the first we see in verse 1, we have here Jesus speaking to them, right? The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, These, this is Jesus. Jesus is the one who works with the Holy Spirit and is connected with the church. He is the intermediary, the mediator. He works between God and the church. And as he speaks to the church of Sardis, we see here that Sardis had a reputation, or in the Greek, they had a name of being alive. They have a name of being alive, but really, they were dead. And so they did many great works by the name of Christ. But what was really going to sign their hearts is that they did not truly know who Jesus was. We see that this church is hypocritical. They had the numbers. They had the skills, they had knowledge, they had the programs, they had the reputation, they had the name of a church, but they lacked the spiritual depth and true knowledge of God. This shows us that you can have, you can have all the exterior looks of a Christian, but you can be a fake on the inside. This reminds us of something that Jesus, Jesus taught us, right? In Matthew chapter 7, verse 22 to 23, Jesus said this, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is a really sad thing to hear. This is how a church, how we can easily deceive ourselves. What is our works? What is our faith? What is our proclamation of belief? Now, this is not saying that our work is unimportant. I'm not saying that, right? James chapter 1, verse 22 tells us to be doers of the word, not just hearers only. Right, because if you're just hearers, you're deceiving yourselves. We are to be doers of the word. So, so scripture does affirm that action works, they're important. But we have to remember that good works must stem from a growing relationship with God. It must stem from us saying, We know our God and we understand that to live is Christ for Him, His glory. You see, hypocrites, when they do and say things in the name of God, in the name of Christ. They do it in that name, but really they do it for their own gain. They do it to feel good about themselves. They do it to feel secure about themselves. They do it so that they can 
work your way into God's favor. But you're not doing it for the glory of God. You're not doing it where God gives the credit, where Christ gives the glory, where Christ gives the praise. And, and this stands out in how we ought to act. This tells us, informs us how we ought to be. It's a little bit ironic here how Jesus describes the church of Sardis. Because really the church of Sardis reflected the history of the church. It reflected the history of, sorry, history of the city. The church of Sardis reflected the history of the city because the city itself, like I mentioned before, was overconfident about their defense system, but yet they were captured. One story of how they were, how they were once invaded. In 5050 BC, the king of uh, the city or the king of the Lydian Empire, uh, King Croesus, uh, he went to go fight the, the Persian army, but they lost, but he lost. And so he retreated back to Sardis. And he started and he just fortified himself in the in this in this uh, barricade himself in this fortress. And he thought he was safe. And so and so he relaxed. He left the walls unguarded. And and over overnight of the Persian and the Persian army sent some soldier to climb up the wall to scale up the, the cliff in the walls and open up the doors so that the army can invade. I mean, they, they were negligent. They were overconfident. They thought that they had the power that no one even dared to try to attack them because they thought they could stand on their name alone. But really inside, they were apathetic. They did not know who they were. See, our works can also hide the deadness of our souls. Your works can fool the church, can fool me, can fool even perhaps yourself. But understand that your works cannot fool God, who sees all and knows all. God knows your heart. Do you know where you stand before your God? We see here that throughout our life, as we continue to go through the ups and downs, as you guys are going to college, entering into a new year, and entering into another school year, going on, taking another step through your major, and you're going to college, and you're in the, some of you guys are going to be on campus for the very first time, other you guys will meet your roommates for the first time, um, and, and many more difficulties, unexpected things to come. As you go through all that, Understand that your faith will be tested. Understand that your faith will be tried through fire. We will see just how genuine your works, your proclamation of faith truly is. And also in college, if you attend other fellowships, if you attend other churches, you'll come to meet other professing believers people who claim that they know the Lord and, and, and they may serve you, they may be gung-ho about God, but we have to understand that statistics, statistics about college Christian, college fellowship tells us something. I went to a college fellowship, I went to Asian American Christian Fellowship, AACF, and as and one of the things they always emphasize to us is that about 60%, I forgot, 67% was more than half of those who attend 
Christian fellowships on campus end up falling away from the faith afterwards. These are people who were active, who served, people who were perhaps even leaders. You see, you may go to church, you may even serve at church. Volunteers spent your weeks there serving Christian fellowships, being at church campus. But where are you on the inside? Where are you in your walk with God? Do you truly know God personally and relationally? Don't be like the church of Sardis, who has a reputation of being alive, but they were dead on the inside. And to these people, Jesus tells them to wake up, which leads to our second point, the name of the game. The name of the game. And, and Jesus here tells us, tells us, exactly what the name of the game is, what the main point is. Tells us to wake up, verse 2, and strengthen what remains, what is about to die. And verse 3 tells us to remember. Remember what you have received and, and keep it and repent. But we see here that Jesus commands the church, commands the church to wake up and rededicate their hearts to God. You see, the church may have started off vibrant, may have started off on a spiritual high, and we know what those feel like. But slowly, it wanes. Those emotions go through its up and down and start to fizzle out. And, and what ends up happening is that Jesus found their works incomplete. See, they may, they may have lived up to the standards of man. They may have gone to the retreats and been 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 ready to go, but they did not pass the long test, test of life given by God. And what they're, what perhaps what they were going through, and you can't fault them, we understand our struggles and our ups and downs as well. Well, what we see here, what, is that they might be going through the motions, right? Christian, Christianity, Christian living might have just become cultural for them. They're just Attending church Fridays, Sundays, prayer meetings on Wednesdays, it becomes a schedule. It's just something to go to, and they just go through the motions going week in, week out. But they weren't truly pursuing God. They were just attending church. And we understand that. We've grown up with that. We, we have even struggled with that at times. And so we can't really blame them for what they're going through. We, we can we can be sympathetic, understand the dangers of what it means to go through devotions, right? The dangers of what it means to just simply attend things, but not truly take the word of God seriously, not truly take what Christ wants you to do seriously day by day. And it's a wake-up call for us. It's a wake-up call. It's, it's an alarm clock that's going up for a while, and it's time for you to stop pressing snooze. It's a wake-up call for this church here. Let's take a look and see what and how Jesus tells them to revive himself, how he tells them to wake up in verse three. It says that to remember, remember what you received and heard. And, and we see here that revival, spiritual revival, doesn't begin with by doing big programs, it doesn't begin on going on to retreats or doing short-term mission trips. It doesn't begin by doing all these kind of revival services, which I know we don't really have these days. That's something probably back in the 40s and 50s. But, you know, we, they used to have these big revival services trying to get people gun hold about God again. But that's not how spiritual revival begins. Spiritual revival is about going back to God's word. 
to remember what you have received and heard. Go back to God's word, read it. Then it says here, keep it, obey it. And then the last thing is most important. Just repent. Repent of your sins. Repent of your apathy. Repent of your negligence. Repent of the deadness of your soul. If you are indeed going through a low through your spiritual walk, understand that this doesn't mean you're not saved. This means it's time for you to wake up, repent of your sins, and come back to God. Come back to Christ. See, this is indeed a warning, but it's a warning to encourage us to press on, to encourage us to pursue Christ again. When we see here that faithfulness, spiritual revival, is meant to be slow, it's meant to be humbling, it's meant to be unassuming, quiet, and consistent. It's nothing big here. It's about just simply coming to God's word, listening to it, obeying it, and recognizing where we are before God. Jesus calls him this. He also gives a, a final warning here at the end of verse 3. He says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And at this time, I actually want to uh, take a little aside and, and talk a little bit about um, some important factors to the study of Revelation, to the study of eschatology in the end times. And, and what we come to see here is, sorry, I haven't been pressing forward. Um, you can take a look at those. Well, what we will we'll come to see here is that Jesus uses this phrase, I will come like a thief. I will come like a thief. And this speaks to, refers to the doctrine, what we call the doctrine of imminence. The doctrine of imminence. And doctrine of imminence is this. Imminence means, refers to an any time or any moment timing of future events. And it's often referred to the timing of Jesus' return or even or the rapture. Some people put those two together, others put them apart. Well, I'll talk about more about you know, those, the rapture, Jesus' second coming, the day of the Lord. I'll talk more about that stuff as the series goes on. But the doctrine of imminence speaks to the timing of that. And it's really saying that can happen at any moment. It can happen at any time. All right, so this, this is what Jesus is referring to when he says that he will come like a thief. He will come unexpectedly. He will come at a time that you don't expect late at night while you're sleeping. And what the doctrine of imminence tells us as Christians, it tells us that we are to have this anticipation, this, this outlook to the future that anticipates the time when Jesus will return. And really, that's any moment. That can be tonight. That can be tomorrow. Or that can be years from now. And one thing that Scripture shows, especially in the New Testament, that, that shows us how why the doctrine of is so important, is because Paul in the early church here spoke about Jesus' return as if it's going to happen in their lifetime. Understand that Paul, when he writes stuff like this, when he writes about you know the coming of the day the Lord is near. He's not saying this as if he, he understands it's going to be 200 years from now. He truly expected it to happen within his lifetime. Do we read those passages the same way? For instance, Romans chapter 13, verse 11 and 12, Paul writes this. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. 
For salvation is nearer to us now than we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. This is not just us understanding, oh, this is a day coming. I mean, it may feel that way because it's been, you know, 2,000 years since Jesus' death and resurrection. But understand that the, this is, Paul wrote this, imagining, thinking that it's going to come within the lifetime. And he wants us to live in the same way. It's going to come. The day of the Lord is going to come. Another example, Titus chapter 2. Verse 12 to 13, to live self-control, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here in Titus 2, we see Paul here writes for us to live a godly life in this present age. Why? Because we totally expect the appearing the glory of our great God and Savior. We expect it at any moment. We expect it now. See, this teaching of eminence help us see the call that Jesus gives this church to wake up, to realize the time is now, that this is important to us, that we are to be found awake and not asleep during the time of Jesus' coming. This is important for us to recognize, or else this, this whole phrase, this whole command doesn't really make an effect on us. Right? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. I want to go back to this passage because Matthew 24 is important for us to understand as we go through Revelation. It's Matthew 24 is well known as the Olivet Discourse, and it talks a lot about Jesus' second coming. And, and we're going to look just at two verse, three verses here, but We'll refer back to Matthew 24 throughout our series through Revelation. But here, Matthew 24, I'm going to look at verse 42. Verse 42 to 44. And here Jesus teaches pretty much the same thing that he teaches the church of Sardis. Matthew 24, 42 says, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this. That if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Up there. We see here that Jesus tells us to stay awake because we don't know when, but if we stay awake because we we expect the thief to come. We expect the thief to come in the middle of the night. And therefore, we must be prepared. We must be ready. We must be ready for Jesus' second coming. This is further emphasized in Matthew chapter 25. We just look over, we see the parable of the ten virgins. Right? And, and I'm not, not going to explain to you this whole thing. Let me just read it and you guys will just see how clear it is. Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. 
Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough oil for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourself. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. What we see here is that Jesus tells us to be awake, to wake up, so that we persist in our faithfulness to the end. That means day by day, we cannot neglect our spiritual disciplines. Day by day, we cannot think that we can just get to it on another day. I know during the time of college, middle year semester, when finals are coming, times can get busy. And maybe you think, maybe just after this week. We say that, so I assume, because, well, maybe just after this semester. Maybe after this year. Maybe after I graduate. Don't think that you can just come back to all this so easily right after you're done with your busy times. Instead, day by day, we are to wake up, stay alert, and live as if Christ will return at any moment. Be disciplined, faithful, until the end. Now coming back to Revelation. We come back to Revelation chapter 3. We see here that Jesus addresses those who are dead. Those who are dead in their faith, telling them to wake up. But starting in verse 4, he starts speaking a little bit more positively about the church. And in verse 4, we start seeing a few good names. Point number three, a few good names. And we see here that Jesus points out that there's a few faithful ones, right? In verse four, it says, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And you know, when we see here, we, we see that they have not soiled their garments. They, they haven't, they didn't get their diapers dirty, right? They're, they're clean. I uh, just imagine some, some people walking around with soiled garments. It's, not a pretty picture, right? And 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 so they were they were clean. They were white. They said it says here they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. Now what it means that they didn't store other garments. Again, remember Sardis was you know uh, that their their main industry was in garments and dye. And so they understood what a garment that was stained looked like. Right, this is their profession. This is their trade. They know what stained garments look like. And, and, and so when you stain a garment, it means it's been tarnished. It's no longer pure. It's no, you try to clean it off, but you always see a little bit of stain remaining. It's almost impossible to get it back to its pristine color, or in this case, it's whiteness. Spiritually, this, this speaks about our own walks with Christ, whether or not it's been compromised. Whether or not it's been compromised to the secular and pagan culture around us. Whether or not you have soiled your garments in this way. 
living in a compromised type of life, trying to have a little bit of this world, but also have your hand in the kingdom of heaven. Understand that this cannot happen. We cannot live a compromised life. But we see here that Jesus speaks of those who have not done so, those who have not soiled their garments. And what we see and what we understand from this theologically is that God always has a remnant. God always have a, a remnant of faithful ones, right? We, if you understand the history of Israel, Israel, the entire nation, God's chosen people fell away from God all the time. But God always said, I still have a remnant. I still have a few faithful ones, a few thousand out of the tens of thousands that walked away from him. He always has a remnant of faithful followers. And they are followers who have abstain from idolatry and this remnant remained faithful because of God's grace they were kept faithful by God's sovereign grace is this grace that protects them from falling from falling into the same compromised idolatry that the rest of their kinsmen have fallen into we see this theology explained to us in Romans chapter 11. In Romans chapter 11, Paul talks about the remnant of faithful one of, in Israel. And he says in the conclusion of talking about this faithful remnant, says in Romans chapter 11, verse 5, he says, so too at the present time, there is also a remnant chosen by grace. Chosen by grace. So this remnant... We see here that this remnant then is worthy, but they're, they're worthy not because of their own words. They're worthy because of the grace of God has a work in your life. And what we come to see here is that they are worthy because by God's grace, they have placed their worth, not in themselves, but in Christ, in Christ. You see, Jesus here calls them worthy. That's fine. When Jesus calls worthy, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take it. We'll, we'll thank Jesus. But we understand Jesus is indeed the worthy one, right? Let's look ahead at Revelation chapter 5 with me. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 11. Look at who is the one who is worthy to open up the seals, to open up the scroll. Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Jesus Christ alone is worthy. He is the one that is worthy of all praise. He is the one who is worthy because Jesus is the one is the, is the one who died and washed all the garments clean, made him white as snow. He's the one, the reason why they have not they have not soiled their garments. The reason why they walk with Jesus in pure holiness and righteousness. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And when we reach verse 5, we see the name that is written in ink. Name that is written in ink. 
The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. The one who conquers here, the one who remains steadfast, the one who remains awake, the one who completes his works before God, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. This is a promise by Jesus, a promise that, they, that we will receive righteousness and holiness to its to a hundred to the level of a hundred percent no longer be growing this way but now we have reached it jesus will clothe us in white we see this fulfilled later on in revelation revelation chapter seven revelation chapter seven verse nine here the apostle john looks out this way sees Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the land, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. This is this is the church. The church from every nation, every tongue, from all people saved standing before the throne and they are clothed in white robes verse 13 chapter 7 verse 13 then one of the elders addressed me saying who are these clothed in white robes and from where and from where have they come i said to him sir you know he said to me these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is, this is amazing. Notice here that the ones who are dressed in white are coming out of tribulation. They're coming out of trials. They're coming out of hardships. They're coming out of difficulties through their life that tests their faith. They come out. To the end, they receive a great reward of righteousness as white as snow, perfected by the blood of blood, blood of Christ. This is not a works-based salvation. This is one that's based on grace alone. The blood of Christ has made it this way. What we see here is that knowing Christ in his work. Knowing Christ and his work on the cross, knowing how Jesus died for your sin, and understanding that saving grace of God that changes your life, all of that, Christ, the cross, the blood, the resurrection, God's grace, all of that is what changes you. All that's what transforms your heart, makes you clean as so that you become more and more like Jesus. All that so that you can be Home, like Christ. This is what it means to endure to the end, to repent of our sins, and to keep on faithfully obeying God's word. Be more and more like Christ. Again, it's not about our works, it's about our relationship with Christ. And we become more and more like Christ when we come to know His grace 
for us in the way he died for us. And note here Jesus' promise to us. Back in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says he will never blot out his name out the book of life. Jesus says this. He says he, says he will never blot out the name out of the book of life. He says this not as a warning. Not as if you can lose your salvation. Not as he can take a pen and just scratch you off. Jesus says this as a joyful promise, as encouragement for you, so that you can continue striving, so that you can continue going after Christ and pursuing him. This is meant for you to stay awake, to stay alert, constantly pursuing Christ and anticipating his return. This is meant to spur you on in faithfulness. Jesus' promise here is to help you to persevere so that even through the toughest times of your life, when your faith is just, you know, hanging by a bread, understand that Jesus holds on to you. God is there to pull you back. Though your faith may fail, he will never let you go. He will hold you fast. Remember Jesus' promise here. Remain faithful and repent of your sins. See, it's ultimately not upon not about your name in the book, though that's a great thing. It's not about your name in the book, but it's about Jesus' name. It's about Christ. The focus always comes back to Christ because we live for the name of Christ. Our life is now hidden. In Christ, we live for Him and not for ourselves. You see here, you see here in this passage just how wonderful Jesus is. Take a look with me here, back at Revelation chapter 3. And take a look here now at verse 1, real quick. It says here that these are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, the seven spirits of God, we covered this um, early in the series. They are, that represents the Holy Spirit. That's God. It goes back to Revelation chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 4, I believe. And it speaks of the Holy Spirit. Seven spirits of God. And the seven stars refers to the seven angels of the churches. Right? That's back in chapter 1, verse 20. Right? The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So they're the, they're the ones who represent the church. It really, it's us. Speaking about us, the church. And it says here, Jesus has both the seven spirits, the Holy Spirit. He has a relationship with God. And he has the seven stars. He has a relationship with the church. What we see here is that Jesus is the mediator between the two. He is the relationship, the bridge between God and the church. He is the one that speaks for both sides. Jesus Christ has the seven spirits and the seven stars. He intercedes between God and the church, between God and us. You see, we are called to live our lives, to sacrifice our lives for the name of Christ, to proclaim his name alone. But we do that remembering that when Jesus died on the cross, 
Jesus died for your name. Jesus knew who you were personally, each one of you individually. He knew your name. He knew your full name, not just some fake name that we assigned to you. He knew, he knows you. He knows who you are. He knows you personally. Jesus died and rose again so that your name may be etched into the book of life. Did that with you in mind. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, verse 33, Jesus says this So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is a relationship that we're talking about. You profess Christ and live your life out for him because Jesus confesses your name. He died for you and rose again from the grave. And so it says here, back in Revelation chapter 3, the end of verse 5, Jesus says, I will confess his name, your name, before my Father, before his angels, Jesus, our mediator, our intercessor. We'll spend our lives proclaiming Christ. And when we come before the throne of God, know that Jesus will proclaim your name before the Father. He will know you by name. There is nothing sweeter than knowing that Jesus knows your name. He knows who you are. And this is the kind of relationship that we have with our Savior. This is the kind of relationship we have with our mediator. The one who intercedes on our behalf. It's a personal relationship. One that's filled with peace and joy. One that is sustained forever because Jesus' blood has washed our hearts to be white as snow. We can have then, a perfect and wonderful relationship with him. This is what it means to be awake and stay alert because we want to be with our Savior who will at any moment return. So the big idea of this message is to remember that Jesus' promise of eternal life is what awakens the soul to repent and live a life of complete faithfulness. Let us proclaim his name. Let us remember that he knows yours as well. This is the kind of relationship we have with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you knowing just how wonderful it is to have Jesus, your Son, as our Lord and Savior. Jesus, who on the cross died for us, each one of us, who knows us by name. Jesus, who has washed us white as snow. Let us come to know this Jesus who, who is amazing. And so, Lord, I pray we will just then really truly pursue Christ in this way, to live our life in a, in a state of alertness, a state of awakeness, to continue to live faithfully day by day, anticipating the time of when your son will return, on when we can be with our Lord and Savior again with him in a perfect relationship.
uh, we anticipate that day. Let us live there now in wake of that. Let us live a faithful life proclaiming the name of Christ. Be with us then for the rest of this night. Let us continue to worship you now in great joy, with great joy and with great hope. I pray all this in your name. Amen.